the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll launch into this last wonderful passage. Father God, we praise you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and all the joy that that brings in all kinds of different circumstances. And we pray now that as we listen to Jesus teaching, our hearts would be filled with gospel joy. In his name, Amen. What puts a spring in your step? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What gives you joy? What makes you want to sing or dance? Something of a litmus test question, because what we... What makes us rejoice is an indicator of what matters most to us. My guess is that for most of us in practice, it might be something like being in love, well, at least if the love is reciprocated, or a wonderful holiday, or a fulfilling job, or a promotion, or interesting travel, or friendship, or a good meal. And those are all good reasons to rejoice. At their best, they're wonderful things. But in our final passage in John 16, I want us to see three reasons why every Christian man and woman can rejoice, whatever the circumstances. I want us to learn three three reasons which can give us joy and put a spring in our step, even when we're not in love or the love's not reciprocated, even when we're made redundant, even when we're sick, even when everything's really bad. Three reasons for joy. That's what we're going to be looking at. We come to the last part of... um, Well, really, the last words that Jesus spoke to his church in embryo, the 11 apostles. And I think the theme is joy and blessing. Just to have a look with me to to, to see if I can persuade you that this is the theme that runs through the passage. Verse 20, the world rejoices, but you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy, the end of verse 20. Then if you look on verse 21, this little image of childbirth. And there's a reference at the end of 21 to her joy that a child is brought into the world. Then if you look at verse 22, the end of the verse, you will rejoice, no one will take away your joy. Then look on to verse 24, at the end of the verse, your joy will be complete. And then the very end, verse 33, um, take heart. So it seems to me that the big idea that runs through this last passage is the idea of rejoicing, taking heart, and encouragement. And I've divided it, I think, um, well, I'm pretty sure the first two are right. The third one we'll have a look at when we get there. But the first one is, is, say, we rejoice in the death of the Son, verses 16 through to 22. Notice the repetition of the little while. 
It really is quite strong at the beginning. Of verse 16, Jesus says, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. 17, some of his disciples said to one another, you can imagine them sort of talking amongst themselves, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father, which he's been talking about a lot. Verse 18, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me. Now by the time it's said all those times, you think that John is trying to make a point, isn't he? John wants us to understand really clearly that he and the other ten apostles didn't understand at all clearly. (laughs) They hadn't the faintest idea what was going on. And you can imagine their puzzlement, can't you? You can imagine their puzzlement. If if Jesus wants to bring in the kingdom of God, why go away? And if he's going away, why come back? You know what is? It just doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah, we tend to read the Gospels and think how stupid the disciples were and how how much cleverer we'd have been. But we wouldn't have been any cleverer, would we? We'd have been saying, I don't know what he's talking about. No idea. This little while, little while, little while stuff. Well, we now know, because we've had the privilege of reading the end of the story, that he's talking about going away to the cross in a very little while, the next day, and that he's going talking about coming back at the resurrection. So, so you notice the language of seeing, you'll, 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 you'll see me no more, and then verse, verse 17, a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me. So in chapter 20 of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene says, she goes away to the, the, the other disciples, she says, I've seen the Lord. And in chapter 20, verse 25, the, the ten apostles who saw Jesus uh, on the Easter day appearance said to Thomas, who wasn't there, we've seen the Lord. And in chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, You've believed, seen. That's what happened at the resurrection. The one who, who, who'd gone away for a little while was seen by them. They saw him. But of course at this stage they can't make any um, sense of this and they say, what on earth is he talking about? What's the point? And as we might say, what's the point of the cross? Because that's the question, isn't it? I mean, somebody coming to Christian faith and the Bible story completely from outside they might be able to see the sense of of a God coming down from heaven if there is a God and there is a heaven and doing God things on earth and setting up a God kingdom on earth which would make the earth a better place. You know, you, you, you could see that for your average sort of religious person that might make some kind of a sense. But to have someone to do that and then go away and be killed, strung up naked in disgrace on a cross doesn't make any sense at all. Why? What's the point of it all? Let's, let's follow on and see. Why not bypass the cross and just set up the kingdom? Let's listen carefully to what Jesus says. Verse um, 19, he, he, he understands they want to ask this. That may have been supernatural knowledge or it may just have been pretty obvious. I'm inclined to think it was actually pretty obvious <laughs> that they were saying that. You can imagine with just you know, 11 of them plus Jesus there. 
not difficult to know what's going on in the rest of the room, I suspect. But anyway, he knows what's happening. So verse 20, here's his answer. Let me tell you, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, amen, amen. Listen to this, guys. That's Jesus' little formula for listen to this, guys. Um, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. That, of course, is exactly what happened on Friday, wasn't it? And no doubt Friday night. I imagine the pre the Passover drinks party for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, was a very happy time. I imagine there were a lot of toasts. They probably toasted Caiaphas. They, maybe they even toasted Pontius Pilate. They wouldn't normally do that. But my guess is that on Friday evening they might have toasted Pontius Pilate. Well done, the Roman procurator. He's done the right thing at last by killing that Jesus. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, verse 20, but your grief will turn to joy. Let's pause on that. Jesus is not saying you will grieve because a bad thing's happened and then separately a good thing will happen which will make you rejoice. He's saying your grief, the thing that caused you grief, the thing that made you weep on Friday and Saturday, will turn into the thing that causes you joy on Easter Sunday. So he's not saying, um, you know, like you might in a family newsletter, Christmas newsletter, I was very ill and then I got better. He's not saying a bad thing happened and I was very sad and then separately a good thing happened and I got better. And that, that made me rejoice. He's saying that what I thought was a bad thing, what made me grieve, turned into the thing that made me rejoice. Notice the picture that comes in the next verse, because this continuity is very, very strong. Here's the image, verse 21. A woman, we've been thinking about this. Indeed, Charles was getting us to think about pregnancy. Where is Charles? I've lost him. There he is. He was getting us to think about pregnancy. So we've got various pregnancies here. Um, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. That is the pains of labor, which is true, isn't it? For every one child who just sort of drops into the world, there's a hundred who cause their mother's considerable grief on the way. Um, That's that's what happens, isn't it? I mean, I was there at the birth of all four of ours. Um, And it kind of makes you glad to be a man, really. Um, (laughs) But the point of the image is this, isn't it? She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it's not like illness followed by recovery. It's not I had cancer and cancer was miserable, but thank God I've recovered and that's good. It's the labor pains are precisely what leads to the joy. And the point is that that Jesus is saying to us and to his apostles, he's saying the cross which will make you weep when you know that I've gone away and died in disgrace like that. The cross will turn to joy. And you will learn to rejoice in the cross. And that Friday will be known forever after as Good Friday. Joyful Friday. The Friday which is the source of our joy. So verse 22, So with you, he says, 
Here's the picture. Now is your time of grief, the time of the cross and the tomb. But I will see you again, the resurrection, and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. I want us to understand that Jesus promises to his apostles and through them to us that the cross will be a source of joy. And I want to say to you very practically, whatever happens to you in the future, you can wake up in the morning and you can say, I can rejoice that Jesus died for me. I can rejoice in Good Friday. I can rejoice in what he did for me then. And I can understand that what he did for me then was like the birth pangs of the new age. It brought me into the age to come, gave me eternal life. And I can, it's paradoxical, isn't it? to rejoice in the cross, but that's the mark of the believer that we do that. Are you rejoicing in the death of God the Son? Jesus wants us to. But he goes on after that in 23 to 28 and says we can rejoice in the love of the Father. Notice the prominence of the Father from verse 23 onwards. So verse 23, halfway through the verse, my Father... And then if you look on verse 25, at the end of the verse, my Father. And then verse 26, um, I will ask the Father. And then verse 27, the Father himself loves you. And verse 28, I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. Six times in six verses, Jesus speaks of the Father. Right back at the beginning of John's Gospel, in John's prologue, chapter 1, verse 18, John speaks of Jesus as, as, as being the one who from all eternity had lived in the bosom of the Father, in the, in the closest intimacy of relationship with the Father from all eternity. And because of that, he can make the Father known. That's his great burden, to do that. So let's take, take us through this. A wonderful, wonderful truth here. Verse 23, in that day, that is after the cross, after the resurrection, you will no longer ask me anything. They'd been asking Jesus lots of questions, requests, not exactly prayers perhaps because they didn't know quite the identity of the one to whom they were speaking, but they'd been asking him lots of things. They'd been directing their questions and requests to Jesus. But after that, you won't ask me anything. I tell you the truth, listen to this guys, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. In my name means on the basis of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done and specifically on the basis of the cross. They couldn't ask the Father in Jesus' name until he died. But after he died for their sins, in the name of Jesus, on the basis of what Jesus has done, Christian people can ask the Father anything. Not on the basis of, you know, dear Father, I've been a good boy, I've been a good girl, please give me something. But dear Father, Jesus died for me, and now I come to you with my requests. So no longer. So, so verse 24, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name, because Jesus hasn't died. But from now on, after the death and resurrection, ask, and you will receive, 
and your joy will be complete. The cross changes everything. The cross gives men and women who believe in Jesus access to the Father. It does, this doesn't mean that we enlist Jesus' support to strengthen our chance of strong-arming the Father, like political campaigning, getting somebody powerful on your side. It means asking the Father on the basis of the forgiveness and the access that Jesus has won on the cross, entering the Father's throne room as forgiven sinners. That's the grounds for our asking. But what kind of father are we going to find when Jesus, as it were, leads us into the throne room? Are we going to find a reluctant, nasty, angry father whose arm has been reluctantly twisted by his son dying to pay for our sin? Are we going to find a cosmic sadist? Are we going to find the kind of caricature that that some of you may have seen that, that, that sad controversy with a Christian leader called Steve Chalk, with his disgraceful, old-fashioned, dated liberal teachings, which completely deny the doctrine of the Trinity and bring dishonor on the Father. That's why it was so serious. Let's see what Jesus teaches, because it's wonderfully different. Verse 25. Though I have been speaking figuratively, you know, language of labor pains and childbirth, figurative language and so on. A time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. He's been longing to do that, hasn't he? But the time is coming when he's going to be able to speak to them plainly about the father. But we'll see that that time doesn't come until the Holy Spirit is given. And in that day, verse 26, you will ask, in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now listen carefully to this. Jesus is saying, I'm not saying you ask me and I'll ask the Father. Rather, as people get at, at one, you know, in, in, in families, you know, often our children would think that Carolyn would be a bit of a soft touch. So they'll ask her and then she'll give me a bit of grief in the bedroom or whatever, and, you know, then I'll give them what they wanted. You know, it's not that kind of thing. So Jesus says, it's not, you're going to ask me, and then I'll ask the Father on your behalf. That's not what praying in Jesus' name means. Look at verse 27. Here's one of the most wonderful statements in the Bible. No, he says, the Father himself loves you. We're going to think about that quite a bit. Let me, let me just, just pause before we get into to, to, to this and just try to expand this a little bit more to, to explain this. Asking the Father in Jesus' name does not mean that Jesus gets between us and the Father. When we speak of Jesus as the mediator, it means he's the mediator because of his work, what he's done on the cross. He's not someone who, as it were, blocks the door to the Father so that I, he gets between us and the Father. The, the, the New Testament elsewhere, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 7, verse 25, uh, or Romans 8, verse 34, uh, or 1 John 2, verse 1, speaks of Jesus as interceding for us to the Father, or being an advocate 
with the Father for us, speaking up for us to the Father. And that language in the New Testament does not mean that Jesus is, as it were, in heaven on his knees before the Father, constantly praying for, for us. What they mean is that what he did on the cross, the wounds in his hands and his side and his feet, what he did for us on the cross is a perpetual intercession for us. So John Calvin, 16th century reformer, wrote, When Christ is said to intercede with the Father for us, let us not imagine anything fleshly about him as if he were on his knees before the Father, offering humble supplications. But the power of his sacrifice is always powerful and efficacious. The blood by which he atoned for our sins, the obedience which he rendered, is a continual intercession for us. So this is a remarkable passage, says Calvin, by which we are taught that we have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his Son. So Jesus doesn't get between us and the Father. And he says, verse 27, the Father himself loves you. Because you've loved me, that doesn't mean that the Father loves us as a reward for us loving Jesus. It doesn't mean first I very sensibly wake up one morning and think I'm going to love Jesus. And then the Father, having hated me, looks at me and thinks, oh look, he's loving Jesus, I'd better love him. It's not that at all. We would never love Jesus if the Father hadn't put, first put that into our hearts to do that. It's that the Father loves by definition those who love Jesus. Any friend of Jesus is a beloved of his. But the love that comes first is not our love for Jesus, but the Father's love for us. I want to dwell on this for a moment. The Father himself loves you. I've been reading a wonderful old book by a great Puritan called John Owen. He writes in the most appalling English. It's utterly unintelligible. It's sort of Ciceronian, Latinate English. Really difficult. I don't recommend it at all. But he, he wrote a brilliant book called Communion or Fellowship with the Triune God, in which he explores our fellowship with the Father, our fellowship with the Son, our fellowship with the Spirit, and what Scripture teaches about those. And a couple of Americans have produced a, a much more intelligent, intelligible edition of his work, so I could just about follow it. But one of the things that Owen really stresses is that the Father loves us. And, and Owen paraphrases verse 27 like this. He says, Don't worry. Don't ask me to procure the Father's love for you. But know for sure that love is precisely what the Father has for you. He himself loves you. I will pray the Father to send the Comforter, that is the Spirit, and with him all the gracious fruits of his love, but on the point of love itself, free love, eternal love, there's no need for me to intercede for that. I don't need to ask the Father to love you. For eminently the Father himself loves you. Be sure of that, that you may have fellowship with the Father in his love. Don't be troubled about it. In fact, the most troublesome and unkind thing you can do to the Father is not to believe that he loves you. The Father is the fountain and the source of all the love of God. The love that Jesus has for us has its source in eternity in the love that the Father has for us. John Owen calls this the great discovery of the gospel. Because he says before the gospel, anybody who understood God rightly would understand that God was rightly angry with us, angry with sinners. 
with a with a with a hot, settled, just, fair, necessary anger against sinners. And the great discovery of the gospel is that for all who are in the Lord Jesus, the Father loves us. It's wonderful. It's a very, very deep truth. And we ought to rejoice. We ought to learn in, to, to rest in what John Owen calls the serene and quiet place in the Father who is benign, kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable therein. My friend, if you're a Christian, I don't know what this week is going to hold for you. I don't know what this month, I don't know what the next 10, 20, whatever, however many years God's give you, God gives you is going to hold for you. There may be some very dark times. For some of us with a group this, this big, there are going to be some who go through some very, very dark times. But if you remember nothing else from this weekend, remember this. If you are in the Lord Jesus, the Father himself loves you. He loved you before you loved him. He loves you not because of anything good in you. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. His love is unchangeable. And Jesus teaches them that here. The Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. And then he sums up his mission, verse 28. I came from the Father. That's why he came, sent by the Father's love and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and finished the work and going back to the Father. So that's the second thing I want us to learn. May I suggest a little spiritual discipline? When you wake in the morning, or some of you perhaps like me wake in the middle of the night, anxious, keyed up about something, saddened by something, troubled by something, let me try a little experiment. Preach to yourself. Say to yourself, name, <laughs> put your name there. The Father himself loves you. I know this in and through Jesus and by his death for, for me on the cross. The Father himself loves you. Your cares and troubles and anxieties won't have gone away, but you may see them in a new light. So there are two wonderful sources of joy. Now the third one is a, a paradoxical one. And you may wonder how I got this and I'll try and explain to you. So the third thing I want to say, and the last thing I want to say is this. We rejoice that our rescue is the work of the Father and the Son, and we contribute nothing. It's a source of joy that our rescue for Christian people is the work of God the Father and the work of God the Son, and we contribute nothing. It's going to be a great relief to see that. If our rescue was something that the Father and the Son contributed most of, you know, like a public finance initiative, private finance initiative, you know, government puts in some money, someone else puts in some money. And if it's that kind of deal, I would always be anxious that I wouldn't quite manage my bit, wouldn't you? But we contribute nothing. Let, 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 let's see how this, this comes. Verse 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now, you are speaking clearly. He's just said he's going to speak clearly in verse 25. He says, I, I've been speaking figuratively, and a time's coming when I'm going to tell you plainly. Now they say, you are speaking clearly, and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Doesn't that sound marvelous? Is Jesus impressed? Verse 31. You believe at last? 
Jesus answered, or it maybe you'll see a footnote in the NIV, you could equally translate it, do you now believe? It doesn't matter how you translate it, the point is an ironic exasperation. Oh yes, says Jesus. You know, they say these wonderful things, Jesus says, oh yes, you think so? Do you really think that you've got it now? Think again, you haven't even begun. And the point is that there's going to be no progress until the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit. You know, apart from the just very occasional little God-given insights, almost entirely through the Gospels, the disciples don't get anything. Very striking, really. Even through Mark's Gospel, it's very striking. I mean, there is that wonderful moment where Simon Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, um, well done, you know, my father gave you that. <laughs> just, you know, just the odd little... But, but by and large, they don't get anything. I mean, it must have been... I guess in a sense Jesus understood this, but it must have been humanly so frustrating. You know, those of us who are who, or have been teaching teachers know how frustrating it is. You know, you teach your heart out, and then somebody asks you a question which shows they haven't got it at all. It's so depressing, isn't it? That happens at Cornhill sometimes. You know, you, you, I give them, you know, I hammer away at something, and then somebody does an exposition. It's just completely wrong. I was telling them the other day I want to cut their heads off and stick them on a spike at, at, at you know, like they used to do with traitors. <laughs> I'm thinking we might do that, actually. <laughs> we might do it with, with photographs. We might get an effigy or something, you know, and, and stick up a Cornhill student for a day because they've got it so wrong. But, I mean, that was, this was it, you see, with, 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 with Jesus. Where's David? Where's David Tubbs gone? There he is. There he are. <laughs> You'll be all right, brother. Um, <laughs> but the, the point is that the disciples are just like us without the ministry of the Spirit, isn't it? Do you see, you see what Jesus says? He says, you, you believe at last, you know, you haven't got it. Verse 32 makes it clear that he, he, they haven't got it. He says, a time is coming and has come any second now. They're, on, they're, they're just on the verge of it now when you will be scattered. The fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 13, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus refers to that, or Matthew refers to that in Matthew 26. You're going to be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. And Jesus is saying, the work that I'm going to do on the cross is a work that you are not going to help me with one little bit. When it comes to the work of rescue, when it comes to the work of dying for sin, you guys have no part in it at all. You're going to be scattered to your home. This is the work of the Father and the Son. I go to the cross with my Father, and in the cry of dereliction on the cross, when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even that eternal fellowship of love is broken. And the Father's heart is broken as he sees the son die, and the son's heart is broken. And Jesus is saying to the, to, the, to the eleven, and by implication to us, you guys are not going to be able to contribute anything to the work of rescue. So don't think you can. <laughs> don't think you can add to the finished work of Christ. 
on the cross. Don't think that by being religious or pious or reading your Bible or saying your prayers or doing stuff in church, you can contribute even 0.1% to your own rescue. I go to the cross alone with, with my father, he says. Now that's actually, it's very humbling. Very humbling, but it's actually really good news, isn't it? We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. The lovely story I often love to tell, I don't know if it's true, but it's a story that's told in, of the Duke of Wellington in, I guess, the 18, late 1810s or 1820s, when the Duke of Wellington, the victor of the Battle of Waterloo, was the greatest citizen in England. And it's a story told in a little country church where it was a, it was a Lord's Supper, communion service, and the custom was to, to kneel at the table in the sort of traditional way. And the deal was that the Duke of Wellington would go and take communion first on his own and go off to his pew and then all the peasants would take communion. But some farm labourer found himself up at the front by mistake because the stewards hadn't done their job very well. And to his horror, he looked up and there was the Duke of Wellington kneeling beside him. So, so of course, this, you know, he made to get up, this this farm labourer, you know, sort of looked rather confused. And apparently the Duke of Wellington sort of said, motioned him and said, no, 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 stay here. We are all equal here. I have no idea whether the Duke of Wellington actually said that. I hope he did, because if he did, it was right. We are all equal here. We contribute absolutely nothing. So let's follow it through to the end. Verse 32. No, but we've done verse 32. Verse 33 is Jesus finishes off. I've told you these things. This is Jesus' last words. I have told you these things so that in me, belonging to me, you may have peace. Peace with God, peace with one another through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In this world you'll have trouble. We, we learnt that yesterday. The world will hate you. You will have trouble. They'll kick you out of the synagogue. Sometimes they'll kill you. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world by my death. Jesus is speaking just in anticipation of his death the next day. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And it's a wonderful truth, isn't it? Wonderful source of joy. These three sources of joy that we've seen. We rejoice in the death of the Son. We rejoice that his death is the means by which we're forgiven. The means by which we're granted access to the Father. by The means by which we're given the privilege of prayer in Jesus' name. Because of the cross. We rejoice in the love of the Father. We rejoice that this great discovery of the gospel, as Owen calls it, opens our eyes to the fact that from all eternity the Father has loved us. And he loves us and will love us to all eternity. And when you have a really bad day and everything goes wrong, say to yourself, the Father loves me. The Father himself loves me. He doesn't love me any less today than he loved me yesterday or from all eternity. He won't love me any, he can't love me any more tomorrow than he loves me today or for all eternity. The Father himself loves us. Let's rejoice in that. Let that put a spring in our step, even on the darkest day. And let's rejoice lastly that our rescue is the work of the Father and the Son and that we contribute nothing. Praise God for that. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we praise you that you have loved from all eternity. 
And we praise you for the wonderful outflow of your love through the Lord Jesus. And that in the Lord Jesus, all the blessings of your love are poured out upon us in the gospel. We praise you that we are drawn into that fellowship of love by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that we might be those who learn to rejoice, not just in the good circumstances of this age, but in these gospel certainties of the age to come. For Jesus' sake. Amen.